The economic recovery is tipped to renew strong development pressure on the country's coastline. Few areas of the coast are protected, and in many regions, council policy appears to be at odds with the concerns of locals. In this Radio New Zealand Insight programme, Sue Ingram investigates. New Zealanders have an affinity with the beach. Sun, sea and sand offer the appeal of a laid-back lifestyle and thousands of people live and holiday on the coast in batches and beach houses. But is this love of being by the sea putting too much pressure on the coast, causing unsightly and out-of-control housing development? Are beautiful bays and beaches turning into suburban subdivisions? We've just come out of the biggest development boom on the coast that the country's seen, but I believe that's only the beginning of what we're going to see over the next 50 years or so. Raywin Peart is a senior policy analyst for the lobby group the Environmental Defence Society. In her book, Castles in the Sand, What's Happening to the New Zealand Coast?, she says accessible coastline within a short drive of the largest cities has seen the most development. If you drive north of Auckland you start to see development just starting to sprawl right up the coastline. Whangaparoa is an interesting example of where we might be headed because the peninsula was once just a series of small batch communities and it's now become essentially one sprawling suburb that goes right up that peninsula. And as you move up north, you just start to see that kind of development spreading up the coast. It's not just the Auckland region, however. There's been a similar trend in Bay of Plenty on the Carpety Coast and Golden Bay. And then, of course, there's the Coromandel Peninsula. Thousands of people flock to the Coromandel in the summer months to be close to the beach. Most of the local permanent populations are small and swell into their thousands during those summer months. The Coromandel Peninsula, with its close access to Hamilton and, of course, Auckland, has made it the holiday home capital of New Zealand. The region's popularity, particularly on the east coast, means lots of houses have been built, and despite the recession, development continues. Some of this is in well-established towns and settlements, but pressure is also coming on beauty spots that until now have escaped. One of these is New Chums Beach in Wainuiototo Bay, a pristine stretch of coast that is now earmarked for a housing project. Your first sight of New Chums. <laughs> Erwin Drock is from the local Ratepayers Association, which is one of the groups opposed to the proposed development. The journey to get to New Chums is a gorgeous one anyway, walking through the bush along the rocks from Wongapoa over the saddle getting your first glimpse of that emerald green water and then this brief walk through a quite a substantial punga forest for probably 100 metres or so. It's just lovely and then when we disgorge at the end and onto the beach um, it is all revealed in its absolute glory. And this is the way we would like to see it being preserved not only for our own enjoyment of course but for our children, grandchildren, all the future generations yet to come. It's been like this for however hundreds of years that man has been in New Zealand and I really don't see why it can't remain in exactly the same primitive state in this patch for just as many more hundred years. But change it will if the proposal to build on the private land gets the go-ahead. On our left is a very 
steep ridge line. It probably goes up, what's that, 40 metres. It is proposed that along that ridge line, which we can't see from here, will be several houses. Okay, they won't be visible, but humanity can be intrusive without being just visibly intrusive. There will be sound, you will hear lawnmowers going, tractors, whatever. If we look straight down the beach and your eye goes up to a bit of a ridge along there and you follow that ridge up a bit, that is the site of one of the houses. It's got what they call filtered views, which means that they have a filtered view of the beach. Equally, we have a filtered view of the house. And whilst they may be very comfortable with that, who is to say in a generation of time or a couple of years that whoever finishes up in that house decides they want a full view on the far end of the beach where the escarpment drops off, there is another two-storey house, again with filtered views looking down onto the water. And as we walk up the beach, we will look up the valley to our left and see the sites for three houses which are going to be visible. The unique thing with New Chums Beach is that you cannot see the hand of man. In 2006, the UK-based Observer newspaper included New Chums Beach on its list of top 20 beaches in the world. Its natural beauty is also praised in international guidebooks. And despite no road access or even signposts, thousands of tourists visit every summer. Today, as autumn approaches, there's only a handful of people here, one of whom is Sonia from Spain. I think this is one of the best beaches I've ever seen. It's really natural. I mean, isolated is just awesome. I mean, we don't have anything like this in Spain. I think this is why it's so special, because there's nothing, nothing. Even if it's just two houses, I guess that will be just the beginning. Then in a couple of years there will be another two and so on. Queenstown-based John Darby is one of the developers behind the project. He didn't have time to be interviewed for this programme, but in an email says, rather than being a housing project, it is in fact a comprehensive land conservation plan which will protect the beach in its present natural state in perpetuity by vesting it and the coastal rata forest as public reserve. Mr Darby says buildings, if they go ahead, on the 12 new titles, will not be visible from any part of the beach. The mayor of the local district council, Philippa Barable, supports the proposal, calling it environmentally sensitive. She says it's the best the council could hope for. I'm absolutely delighted that the developers actually brought forward the proposal that they have because by all means they didn't have to. There was no reason for them to have done that. Uh, they are taking a reasonably expensive option, whereas based on our current district plan rules, they could have come in and done some pretty obvious and quite damaging, I guess, development there. The mayor says the council's current district plan, the document that informs what can be done where, is deficient. The district plan was released back in 1997. Most of the district plan was actually a rollover of existing rules and regulations that were in previous plans. In fact, a lot of the rules and regulations in there go back to the very first district schemes under the Town and Country Planning Act in the 70s. So you know, there's some very, very old rules and regulations that really, in my view, are not applicable to the way that society lives today. Philippa Barrable says it's unfortunate that the rules allow for development at places like New Chums Beach and rejects suggestions that the council is pro-development. 
the enormous public interest in this site, it's, it's actually disappointing that they didn't come to us when we notified the plan and actually say, crikey, you've got this terribly wrong. How could you possibly allow some rules that allow development on the site? That was the time and the opportunity, and it, and, and it was a very publicly notified that these were the rules that were going to be put in place on the Coromandel Peninsula. As I say, that particular rule has remained unchanged for 40 years. So you know, there's actually, you know, there have been opportunities for the public to have actually stopped this. But unfortunately, they've left it to the 11th hour, where actually now it can't be changed. So now we have to try and find a compromise and get the best possible outcome that we can under the rules. Local councils work within a regulatory framework largely governed by the Resource Management Act. The RMA recognises the importance of the coastal environment and makes local authorities weigh up any building plans in light of protecting coastal features and access. The actual detail of what's appropriate and where is then governed by individual district plans. In Coromandel, the district plan does not prohibit development anywhere, but does try to manage it by establishing areas of different zoning. The councillor's development planning manager is Mark White. If you move out of the main settlement, we have um, a coastal policy area which restricts development, keeps it at a much lower density. The policy is one site per 20 hectares. So if you want to go beyond that, then you need to um, apply for a non-complying application. Non-complying applications are much more rigorous. We go through a lot more tests. We look at a whole host of effects on the landscape, the ecology, traffic movements, and the services, and all sorts of things like that. Those applications generally are notified, and therefore you usually get a lot more public input into those applications. With New Chums Beach, the council is waiting for the developer's final application before the proposal is publicly notified. A hearing will then be conducted by independent commissioners with the expense picked up by the developers. The inquiry's decision may well go to the Environment Court. Not far away in Orpito Bay, there is another stretch of glorious white sand, offshore islands and undeveloped headlands. A line of mostly renovated and upgraded batches means it's far from pristine, though it still retains a laid-back, tranquil air. But for how long? A subdivision at one end of the beach consisting of 79 lots is going ahead, even though the consent issued by the local council was challenged in the Environment Court. Mark White. In a nutshell, the judge found that the development was appropriate in that location because it had been identified in our structure plan, in the district plan. Um, so he allowed the development to go. The one area that he did change the development was ensure that there's some public open space provided as part of that development, but that clearly was land identified for subdivision. However, the areas outside of Apito Bay, which are just normal coastal land, you probably won't get any development there or you'll get limited development there. Well, looking from here, it's, say, five, half a kilometre in from the last house, that's where the, the, the subdivision will end. You've still got just about a mile of beach left. And it's a beach for all New Zealanders, so I can't really see that it's a, a huge problem. This local has lived here for 30 years. This here is just the farmer's uneconomic. It's a subdivision that was allowed 30 years ago, over 30 years ago. So anyone that's come here thinking that they could stop that sort of development, I think it's a little bit unfair. But... Um, for a beach that's three and three quarter miles long, 
we've got less than two miles of it developed. So I think that's a balance. We love the area, but we also live in the Coromandel as well. This local accepts that people want to visit the area. As long as they respect the environment and sort of keep the houses so that they don't stick out like a sore thumb. But I think everybody could have the opportunity to see these environments and live in these environments. She fears that the development proposal at New Chums Beach may represent the thin end of a wedge. The track record is there's always push, push, push until somewhere along the line there's going to be something sticking out. So if they were going to stick with what they've said, fair enough. But no wonder everybody gets up in arms because the track record is they don't do it. And somebody will put a house somewhere, push the boundaries, they've got the money, they'll get their way. Few people are anti-development per se, but there's a clear tension between accepting a certain level of growth and growth that is seen as out of control. On the Coromandel Peninsula, the council is trying, not always successfully, to focus growth in seven main settlements, those that already have established infrastructure. Matarangi is one of those seven settlements. The large development of more than 1,000 homes sprawls over a low-lying sandspit about a 20-minute drive north of Fitianga. It's a purpose-built resort town and has been, until recently, one of the fastest-growing settlements in the region. It has a long beach, a band of pine trees that shade some of the more upmarket homes, a golf course and an airfield. In another 30 years, the forecast is for over 2,300 homes here, although at the moment there are empty sections aplenty. Local estate agent Mike Harper was involved in managing Matarangi Beach in the late 80s and early 90s. The last subdivision that I was involved with, they squeezed another 17 sections into what was 100 sections. So the sections came down, the reserves disappeared, and the whole structure of the project changed. And I think it was very unfortunate, personally. The number and design of the houses gives a very suburby feel. But although it may not be to everyone's taste, these locals like living in an affordable home in a coastal region. Kind of grown on me, actually. I wasn't too sure when I first came. It's a little bit strange, eh? If you've ever been to sort of small beach towns in sort of northern New South Wales, it's quite similar to that. But it's pretty random. It's just a sort of so relaxed, so laid back, it's just lovely. Sometimes I sort of think yeah, it would be lovely to be able to live on the sea, on the waterfront there, but then there's, you've still got your different problems. And here we've got traffic going by, so you get to see things. I think it depends on the personality of you, you know, yourself and what you actually like. And when we first came down here, first started coming for holidays here was 2001, and the big Wangapawa Hill wasn't even tussled. And so the sections around here were pretty cheap. And then as soon as that was done, that was it. Prices went right up. Do you think there should be defined areas that are protected totally from development? Uh, Yeah, I mean, you should sort of leave land as is. For the time you've got something like this, why do you have to go to New Chums? You know, you've got Wangapara right next door. It's kind of, yeah, but everybody's going to do it, aren't they? Fitianga is another of the seven settlements where the council is trying to focus growth. Now, where we're taking you now is to the Katana Terminal, or Aquasalay. The apartment I'll show you is 360,000, and that includes a boat shed where you can put at least a, a six-metre boat into. So over two levels. So as you can see, it's got a nice view straight to the beach. 
uh, and it's set back off the road a little bit so it's actually quite quiet, you don't get the car noises etc. This townhouse development replaced a campground on Buffalo Beach in Fitianga. Built in 2005, estate agent Mike Harper says the complex was the first townhouse development in the settlement. His manager, Mary Walker, says she's seen major changes in the town since she first arrived 20 years or so ago. When we first came here, it was a, a little sleepy little hollow. Most of the shops closed down over the winter. However, that has changed considerably with the waterways development, the marina development and, and development in the surrounding beach locations. Apartment buildings have been one answer to the demand for homes in Fitianga. Another is the waterways development, described by the developers as New Zealand's largest canal housing project. What you're looking out at is an arm of canal which comes through. Straight across is stage which is being sold. There is a boat ramp there next to the jetty. The boat ramp. Evans Young is the director of Hopper Developments, the company behind three canal projects in this country the first ever in Power Nui, here in Fitianga, and another at Marsden Cove on the shore of Whangarei Harbour. Basically it's taking low-lying land within the coastal area and creating artificial water frontage. What we are doing, or what we believe we're doing, is we're satisfying a, a, a requirement for water frontage, but in a manner which gives all the adders and they can park their boat there. It's in a clean, controlled environment. And as a result, we are taking away some of that demand for the natural, pristine coastline. Raywin Peart from the Environmental Defence Society says the Hopper brothers brought the concept to New Zealand without much debate. In a way, you can say, well, it's not such a negative model because in a sense you're creating new waterfront where there wasn't it. People can enjoy it and you're diverting development away from those more pristine areas of the coast. I think on the, on the other side of the coin you are creating a very artificial kind of coast and these developments do require ongoing dredging to maintain access to boats and that has a whole lot of environmental issues attached to it. At Marsden Cove in Northland, the development caused some criticism because the canal entrance has split the beach, affecting access. In Fitianga, locals voiced opposition to a planned six-storey or 20-metre-high retirement village building. Evans Young. That raised a number of concerns with the community that this was a thin end of the wedge, that if we allow this to occur suddenly we're going to get the proliferation of high-rise apartments down on the beachfront. It's going to become another Mount Maunganui surface paradise, etc., etc. There was some compromise there, and we dropped a level off, and we've brought it down, and we got consent for five levels. We are comfortable that when the community sees what is being provided, they will accept what is there. But it is the fear of the unknown and it's also the fear that we were pushing the limits of what they felt they did not want to become. Mr Young believes everything is a matter of compromise. Here at Fidianga, where there is an established community, there is a need for the community to build on its infrastructure that it has here to survive. There are areas like New Chum, Zotama, etc., where... They are more pristine, and they are the reason why people come to Fitianga, because they can then go to these more natural areas, and we need to preserve them. So there is the compromise of, yes, we have to, I suppose, lose something 
in some locations so that we can actually preserve what is worth saving in others. What does he say to people who accuse developers of being greedy of destroying areas by developing them? Unfortunately, there is an element of truth. But as the population grows and as they become more affluent, they are looking at how they spend their recreation time, etc., and they wish to spend it in a pleasant location. So, yes, developers cater for that demand. We charge for our services, and for us to continue to provide those services, we, we must make a profit. You look at Coastal, and traditionally there's been the little family batch, which has been the little fibre plank batch that Grandad built with his own hands, etc., etc., which... If it burnt down, you couldn't get a building permit to replace it. And what people are, I think, reacting to is that loss of innocence that was there growing up in the 50s, going to the beach. It was very, very basic. You made your own fun, and there was a complete innocence there. And that's what people are perhaps more concerned about. You look around, you look around at the housing that's out here, there is definitely not a beach batch. <laughs> As Evans Young points out, developers wouldn't build houses in areas where no one wants them. Growth can also provide jobs and services. Development also provides money for local councils in the form of fees and subsequent rates. But a council often has to provide additional infrastructure for areas of development, which then attracts more growth and the demand for more services. It creates a self-fulfilling spiral of development and growth. <laughs> in trying to grapple with these pressures, the Thames Coromandel District Council is consulting the community to produce a blueprint which will feed into its new updated district plan. Thank you very much and uh, welcome and thank you for your efforts to come and spend your spare time out here doing these important things. It's really an important role in, in so many ways. You're a voice of the Coromandel, and to get your opinion is really important for us. Cobus Men's heads Urbanism Plus, the agency to which the council is paying a quarter of a million dollars to facilitate the consultation process. He says getting people to think about where growth should take place is vital. We've got to reconcile the population forecasts into the community. And so we've got to see how that gets distributed. And there will be numbers set against every place. And, and if we don't get direction as to where that's best accommodated, then we could get it wrong. This public meeting on a Monday evening in Coromandel Town saw around 20 people turn up. Raywin Peart from the Environmental Defence Society says the council's attempt to consult and think strategically about the development of the peninsula is laudable, but not enough. This is all very good aspirational stuff, but unless you get those provisions in your district plan, it doesn't count for a lot, and that's often where this kind of thing breaks down. The council comes under enormous pressure from development interests when you get to that kind of level of putting it into the rules. Not only that, then it can also involve quite expensive court cases and you get this sort of similar scenario. And that's why I believe it's really important that we get stronger central direction. In theory, a revamped national coastal policy statement could provide that central direction. The statement is part of the RMA and provides an overarching policy guide for coastal planning.
An updated document was put out for public consultation in 2008, and a board of inquiry appointed by the Minister of Conservation considered the 535 submissions. Raywin Peart says the one currently in use dates from 1994, and in terms of coastal development is a damp squib. What we're looking at is a revised document, which we hope will be much stronger, much clearer, more directive about how we need to manage development on our coast. So the opportunity that we have as a country is to put in place a much clearer, stronger document that will take things forward. Few people have seen the final report and it has sat on the Minister of Conservation's desk for a year. Kate Wilkinson says she's now trying to decide what to do. Oh, there's an option that we can we, we might consider the 1994 coastal policy statement is is better than the proposed one um, and doesn't need amending. But I'd have to say I, I would uh, I'm tending towards making some smaller changes. Is National about to take a different direction to Labour regarding the coast? We have obviously um, different philosophies, and um, and of course the the review of this coastal policy statement was done under the Labour government. Um, we. Uh, I'd have to say they led us into the economic doldrums and we're trying to lead ourselves out of it. So in in that sense, yes, we do have different directions. So in terms of coastal development, what does that mean? Well, again, I mean, we've still got to strike that right balance that builds what we need and protects what we value. Building what we need, what does National think that we need? Oh, well, it depends on, on obviously, the local communities because the, 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 the coastal... Plans. I mean, what we're looking at is a, is a national coastal policy statement, if you like, which is the overarching policy. But underneath that, it's up to the, the regions and the local communities to, des- to determine what is best for their needs and for their communities. It's a response that's likely to disappoint environmentalists like Raywin Peart. The problem with our current legal framework and, and the way it's been implemented is that Anywhere on the coast, essentially, that's not in public ownership can be developed. There are absolutely no areas that are off limits. And, and that's the fundamental weakness in our current system. And if we don't resolve that or fix that problem, essentially we'll lose it and, and the entire coast will be developed close to large population areas like Auckland. Any suggestion that areas of outstanding beauty should be brought under public protection finds no favour with the present government. Kate Wilkinson. We're in a time of sort of some straightened economic conditions. Um, uh, is that the best use of taxpayers' money to buy some coastal land, or, or is it better to put it into health and education and other areas? And it's always a matter of prioritising. But I'd have to say that really we're not looking at um, spending money and buying up coastal property. A proposal for a coastal commission which could have the role of coastal watchdog is also dismissed by the Minister. To me, you've got to look at is that just another layer of bureaucracy and each layer of bureaucracy costs money and is it, a best, is it the best use of taxpayers' money? The direction of future coastal development then lies firmly in the hands of the community and local councils. Around the coast the recession has temporarily stalled the galloping growth of the past 10 years. It gives councils like Thames Coromandel a chance to get a new district plan in place before development threatens to outpace it again. But they will have to move quickly, with developers waiting in the wings. The thing that is noticeable is some of the larger developers are getting ready for when the recession finishes, waiting for the economic turnaround. That Radio New Zealand Insight programme was written and presented by Sue Ingram.